This is Jamie Benning, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to episode 20 of The Optical Podcast, where we're revisiting the history of VFX films and movie technology through the lens of Cinefix Magazine. Thanks to Cinefix for providing us access to these out-of-print back issues, and stay tuned for your chance to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine later in the show. This episode will be digging into the effects of Revenge, uh, I mean, uh, Return of the Jedi, and talking about the technical advancements that have been made since ILM did the effects for The Empire Strikes Back. A lot of research for the episode comes from Cinefix issue number 13 and the issue-long article, Jedi Journal, uh, written by Richard Edlin, Dennis Murin, and Ken Ralston during the production of Return of the Jedi, and edited by Don Shea. Joining us is Jamie Benning, creator of Filmumentaries. And if you enjoy going behind the scenes on the Star Wars films, I highly encourage you to go to filmumentaries.com and check out his documentaries and interviews. Earlier this week, the Projection Booth podcast also put out a crazy six-hour podcast on Star Wars. So we'll have the link to that in our show notes. I honestly don't know how the hosts Rob St. Mary and Mike White have the time to keep cranking out the crazy amount of interviews and podcasts that they put out, but maybe I can learn a thing of two from them. Uh, also, we've revamped the newsletter for the show, and we're putting out a variety of VFX and film tech links every other week, opposite the podcast release. So check out the latest issue at news.opticalpodcast.com, and you can subscribe right from that page. But now, let's talk about Return of the Jedi. Return for the climactic clash between the forces of good and evil. Return to a galaxy far, far away. Return of the Jedi. The next chapter in the continuing Star Wars saga... Freedom rages on. Here to talk with me now about Return of the Jedi is Jamie Benning, creator of filmumentaries such as Returning to Jedi. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm doing very well, Mark. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been, well, how long has it been? A year and a half? Two years? Uh, I'm not sure. Has it, has it been that long? <laughs> I, I think it might have been. <laughs> it's difficult to remember, but no, it's good to be back and talk to you again. <laughs> I think I've only been doing the podcast for a year and a half, so maybe <laughs> slightly less than that. Okay, maybe a year then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good to have you back on. And you've you've been uh, busy creating some some stuff in the meantime as well. Um, you've got new uh, videos that you've got on your Patreon account. Yeah, that's right. I kind of after making the full length, um, the feature length filmumentaries, I kind of realized that I didn't have enough time to make more um, just yet. And uh, I thought, well, why not do some interviews with some people myself, which was a thing that I'd started to do with my Raiding the Lost Ark project and Inside Jaws. And I just thought, you know, why don't I make some short ones and make some short videos to go with it? So, yeah, I've been trying to get those out there. And the latest one that I've just done seems to have taken off a little today, uh, which is nice, getting a lot of good feedback. Oh, which one is that? Uh, Blast It Bigs, Where Are You? So it's about... 
Biggs Darklight of the character that was Luke's best friend in uh, in Star Wars that got pretty much removed from the entire movie apart from the end. Um, oh, but right. I, I interviewed the, the guy that played him, Garrick Hagon, and uh, we spoke for about two hours and uh, I turned it into a little 16, nearly 17 minute uh, kind of video interview with all the behind the scenes bits and him recounting his experiences. I, unfortunately, I haven't watched that one yet, but the uh, the one you did before that, uh, slimy piece of worm-ridden filth, <laughs> I found rather entertaining. It's all about the titles, yeah. No, that one, it actually stemmed, uh, the one most recent one I did stemmed from that because I was invited to go to the British Film Institute here. They were doing a Star Wars trilogy day, just showing the three films, and uh, I mentioned that I was unable to get a ticket because a friend of mine had to drop out and stuff. And um, Toby Philpot, who was one of the animators of, uh, sorry, one of the puppeteers of Jabba the Hutt, said, well, why don't you come with me? Uh, my wife doesn't want to come. Um, you can be my plus one. So I spent the day in the green room with, with those guys, with Greedo and Biggs and Jabba. And uh, I got chatting to them and um, Toby was willing to go first. So we did a um, an interview split over about two and a half weeks um about three hours interviews and uh i've got some great material about him talking about the dark crystal and um labyrinth as well about sharing a cigarette with um david bowie for instance but also the jab of the hut stuff i knew i had material to to kind of um work alongside that and uh, one of my friends pete starling who's recently um sorry who's always been there for doing my posters and and uh title cards and things decided he was going to do some some animation stuff for me so he, him and his son um built a cardboard jab of the hut <laughs> no, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and a plasticine <laughs> jab of the hut so yeah it's great getting because that's what's great about these projects is you know people are willing just to come on board to get their stuff out there and and kind of show it off and i'm always willing of course to put their name on the credits and so many so many film and star wars fans out there so they, they jump at the chance that's pretty great. Yeah, I love those those little moments of animation in the, the film. That was kind of unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's one to watch out for in uh, the Biggs one as well. Hopefully you'll enjoy that too. Very cool. I, I just like, I watched uh, Jedi over the weekend and I I hadn't watched it probably in a decade, um, which is it, just kind of stemming from, personally, I wasn't real thrilled about episode three and I just kind of, swore off star wars for a while and i've mm-hmm. kind of like slowly been getting back into it and and last year you know watching empire again for the the podcast mm. it was just i i realized how much i missed it <laughs> it's a pretty great film and this one is too um i was impressed by the evolution of the effects uh in the film from what they had done in empire i think one of the one of the big things that i, I thought was impressive was that uh, like in Empire, they did like one or two shots that were, um, you know, they they had the the Tauntaun out on the the icy wilderness of Hoth, and uh, like did motion tracking to animate the uh, the Tauntaun into the scene that was just shot from a helicopter with you know no no reference points or anything. They're just like trying to make kind of lock it to the ground in the in the shot. And there were so many more of those in in this film, um, just like you know the little chicken walkers running around in the forest. And there's mm-hmm. so many of those that are <laughs> real forest camera just panning around, and they have to the track that in there. 
um, which is you know all the more amazing that it's there's no computers involved. It's yeah. them like plotting it on a <laughs> on it's a crazy. you know flatbed. Yeah. Well, that that Tonton shot still amazes me today. I watched um, the Empire Strikes Back uh, on my. I've got a little hundred inch screen cinema that drops down between my living room and my dining room here where I'm sitting now. And, uh, it still blows me away that shot. And it's funny when I've seen Dennis Muren talking about it, it almost still blows him away that they managed to pull it off. You know, I don't think they, they thought they could, um, I, God knows how many passes they must've done to get that right. But, uh, no, it still looks great today. It's, you know, I think cause you've just got, you know, that's a real, place a real helicopter shot you 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 buy it straight away and just as you say that motion tracking is amazing funnily enough watching the return of the jedi on the bfi in a 4k print that they'd done i did notice some travel in the the chicken walkers uh the atsts uh within the forest but it's the first time i've never it's first time i've ever noticed that um you have to really look for it yeah you do have to really look for it and it you know i saw that film on one of the biggest screens in the UK at the time for my seventh birthday. And uh, it's always been a big favourite of mine, even though, you know, a lot of people play it down because of the Ewoks and the merchandising and all that stuff. But um, oh, I loved it. I was in the absolute thick of it then. And that film means a lot to me. And uh, I'll always be excited by seeing those effects. In fact, I've got a book in front of me right now, which is the Return of the Jedi official collector's edition, which is this kind of... Mm. I don't know, I guess it's like a, a slightly upmarket magazine full of uh, all of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And that is what got me turned on to trying to find out more about the behind-the-scenes of the Star Wars films. You know, I was just looking at hmm. it um, a little moment ago and it just, you know, runs you through the creatures and the sound effects. And I know this book inside out. It's ridiculous how many times that you can see my th- dirty thumb marks all go through it. <laughs> But, you know, that was, the, that was the film that turned me on to, to all of this stuff. And, you know, I'm 38 and I'm still making these things, still trying to find a way of, you know, translating my interest across to an audience. Now. Yeah, I mean, that's the Jedi was the first one that I saw in a theater um, mm. when I was a kid. Because um, I remember, I, I know I saw Star Wars on TV at some point, probably shortly before Empire came out. And I seem to remember my parents asking me if I wanted to go see Empire in the theater. And I was like, I wasn't sure. Like I, I was kind of scared there, there would be something too scary for me in the, in the film or something. Cause I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I was five, but that that was what I was thinking. And then when my, my parents came home and they were like, Oh yeah, it's, it's good that you didn't go. Cause Luke got his hand cut off and you know, which is almost <laughs> like nothing in the film. But mm. I'm, you know, they're telling me this. So I'm imagining, oh my God, yeah. his hand must be this bloody stump or something <laughs> horrible <laughs> thing <laughs> that's way worse than what was in the movie. Um, yeah, it's funny how uh, growing up with those movies, you kind of ignore that stuff. And now I've got kids, I'm watching them watch the films for the first time and they don't see that, but they're like, ah, oh, that's great. You know, and then they're outside pretending their hand's missing by tucking their hand in their shirt. It's <laughs> uh, probably what I did when I first saw it. But it's interesting what you said about having, you know, watched it and and seeing how much of a ramp up it was in terms of special effects. I think I think it's the most special effects heavy um, film from the trilogy, isn't it? I think there's something ridiculous like 360 effects shots in it, which for the optical days, I think that's insane. Yeah. Um, and I think there were, 
uh, just reading the sound effects article about it, um, Richard Edlund particularly was like saying, well, you know, it seems like a lot of shots, but I think we're, you know, we're going to be fine. We've, we've done a lot of this before, so we can make it a little smoother than it was before. And then like kind of as his, his diary goes month by month, <laughs> as they're getting closer, it's like, oh my God, there's just so many shots and we're all stressed out. And, <laughs> and, and then like, they're gonna, you know, George is going to cut back some shots. So I was like, okay, okay, we can breathe a little because they're cutting these, but then they add a hundred more. So it really yeah. never ended up being less shots, <laughs> fewer but it's shots. It's like that story with the, the end of Empire when I think they'd screened it and it was all signed off. And then I don't know if it was Ken Ralston or Richard Edlund got a call like in the middle of the night saying, you've got to come down here. We've got to do another shot to finish off the movie where they, where you see the big medical frigate and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, he thought it was a joke, you know, but they, <laughs> they had to go in there like a week before the print was made oh, wow. to, uh, to add this final shot. And I, I bet that was hovering in the back of their mind throughout the production of uh, Return of the Jedi. It looks like it's finished, but <laughs> it just depends what George says. You know? <laughs> and, not just the number of shots, but also the complexity of the shots. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you were pointing that out, whereas in some of these uh, big shots in the in the space battle near the end, there could be hundreds of elements in the shot mm. altogether. And it's amazing that the, the quality of the image looks so good with so many things going through the optical printer. Absolutely. I mean, there's that. There's a shot in, I think I put it in my Returning to Jedi, the filmumentary I did about Return of the Jedi. There's a shot of one of the effects guys sitting there with a big kind of uh, A3 sheet. There's just a grid and each cross in this grid um, represents where one ship passes another. So as to either go under or over, dependent on their scale. And I remember seeing this documentary. It was... um, originally from a documentary over here that was, I think there was an American version, but there was a UK version on the BBC called um, How to Film the Impossible, it was called, ILM, How to Film the Impossible. It's part of the Horizon documentary series over here. And uh, I remember seeing that and just thinking, wow, you know, even as a kid in 1984 or whenever it was, just wow, how, how, how complex to have to sit down and work out exactly how this TIE fighter is going to pass this X-Wing, because this X-Wing is nearer the frame, but it's bigger than the uh, than the Tie Fighter, which has got to go behind it. In fact, there are there are a couple of mistakes. There's one shot that always jumps out of me in Return of the Jedi. I think it's as Lando is talking to his co-pilot, and all the Star Destroyers are lined up, mm-hmm. and one of the smaller ships sits in front of one of the bigger ships, and the scale is all kind of screwed up just for a second, just to the right of frame. And you know, it's little mistakes like that that I'm sure great on the. Uh, the effects guys when they watch it through again <laughs> we let that one slip through mm-hmm. but no amazing amazing achievement yeah not just uh, not just keeping uh you know the mat straight so that one thing is in front of the other uh but also shooting all of these elements separately we they um i forget who who said it in the cinefx article but that uh, probably ken ralston um saying that they they had maybe gotten away with shooting some of like multiple uh, ships together in one shot, like multiple models. Um, but it, that kind of tended to look a little too locked off. Um, even though they're moving, they're all moving exactly in relationship to each other. So they really went through and kind of programmed in moves uh, for every element in the shot, except for, you know, maybe like the super tiny, tiny things in the far distance. It might be, several little 
photographs of ships, you know, glued to a plate of glass in the background wow. or something. But because um, there is that one shot, I think that that is essentially the most sophisticated visual effects shot of its time, and it's where the Millennium Falcon is kind of going from bottom right, uh, bottom left to top right. Well, there's TIE fighters and X-Wings and Y-Wings and A-Wings and B-Wings <laughs> all just flying around just like, you know, a swarm of flies. I can't remember how many elements it had in it, but I remember, you know, the look on their faces as they were telling the audience this in the documentary that I saw. <laughs> it's like, you better believe this is the most complicated thing. And then seeing it in the film and it lasting three seconds and thinking, oh, that looks great. But what we did was much more difficult, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Also, the the models weren't all to the same scale, so like no. calculating the the motion control moves that they had to do with the camera to make them, you know, make sure that the moves are in relationship to each other and also at the right, you know, kind of scale the move so that the ship looks like it's at the same scale of the other ships. Yeah, because there's that first one of the first shots in the first Star Wars film where the blockade runner is being kind of tractor beamed into the star destroyer the, the blockade runner's bigger in uh in reality so they had to scale those down and just try you know just trying to keep that consistent must have been an absolute nightmare yeah so there was an awful lot of motion control uh camera work going on for that by near the end of production they had five motion control rigs and they were using them both day and night so they would have like a setup uh, with you know several models at one end of it, but then like the, that might be for the day crew, and then at the other end of the track, they would have the setup for the night crew. <laughs> and wow. So they could kind of you know leave it overnight, but still use the track for both crews. So two crews a day, six days a week near the end, just kind of burning people out on it. I think. Yeah, I remember seeing some of the the kind of stats of the you know the the Death Star tunnels and the surface of the Death Star from Return of the Jedi. I think it was like 72 feet long. I always remember that stat. Yeah, I think they said 60 feet in the Cinefix article, but there's... Right, okay. The Death Star tunnels were 25 to 30 feet wide and 100 yards long, so 300 feet long. Jeez. Um, And I'm not... I think what I was thinking of, uh, there was another 60-foot segment that was the one that they actually use for the pyrotechnic sequence that's like exploding as they zoom uh, out of the yeah the sure yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just crazy i'm i've actually found a page in my little magazine here that says that they use the vista cruiser camera which would first move along the surface surface vertically mounted and then enter the opening tracking down the tunnel parallel to the camera track just like just you know thinking just thinking about the physicality of these things it, it just boggles my mind you know i get i get peed off when i render a video overnight and then i realize i've spelt something wrong can you imagine just burning <laughs> burning the film and uh having to the night you know you think you've done it on the night uh, as a part of the night crew and then the next night you're asked to repeat that same shot <laughs> because you made a mess of it yeah um, and there, and uh, Ken Ralston was saying too that they had to, they had to go through and do like, you know, just uh, maybe two or three major pieces of a shot, comp those together as black and white, so they could even get them into the cut and kind of, you know, get them cut down so they could lock the cut so that they could start scoring the film, and 
that was kind of slowing them down as well because it's like, well, I can't just kind of continue on and do the same set of moves for this whole big sequence. I got to have to like set up two or three of them and then I have to go to a completely different shot and figure out the moves for that one. And, uh, and then, you know, come back and fill them all in later. And we just need to rush to get these out so they can start scoring the film. And then, you know, after that point, the timing is pretty locked, so you can't really <laughs> change it. Although, which that was uh, helpful to them, he said, because early on they were maybe producing 50% more footage than they actually needed for the film because George really liked to take it and kind of cut it and mix it up and change things around in editing so they didn't really know exactly which frames were going to get used. Mm. Yeah, it says here that in The Empire Strikes Back, they produced uh, 1,650 camera, uh, camera reports. That's every time an element is shot. And then for returning, Return of the Jedi, it was 3,000. <laughs> yeah, it's just boggling, isn't it? That they, uh, I think also th- this was the first time in a Star Wars movie that they use videomatics to this extent as well. Oh, right. I think before on Empire, they did a lot of... Um, traditional sort of pen animation, pencil animation. I've seen some of the stuff of the Atats on Hoth and the Snowspeeders, but I found some when I was looking for uh, Returning to Jedi of, you know, uh, cardboard cutouts on sticks and Ken uh, Ralston making the sound effects, you know, as they go past (laughs) camera and they would cut that into the movie and, you know, ask George, is this what you want? And I'm sure he just said faster, more intense. And they went back and (laughs) (laughs) carried on. I thought that was pretty great that, you know, the same thing that kids are doing all across the country or, you know, it's the yeah. guys actually making the film are going. And of course, they went that extra mile as well with the speeder bike scene. Yeah. Where they got the actual Star Wars action figures, which is great, and made these mock up um, speeder bikes and put them on rods and made a mini forest and did it shot for shot. You know, I think that's great. I, I've always loved that sequence. In fact, I did a little for the DVD release of my Returning to Jedi. I did a a little um, split screen split screen comparison of the final film and the animatic. And mm-hmm. I tell you what, it's pretty blooming close, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, on on your um, point that they they got the uh, Star Wars action figures to use for that, I was really delighted to read that in one of the. Uh, the shots at the end where the uh, you know the fireworks are going off and there's X-wings streaking across the sky, uh, they said they bought uh, a commercial model kit with a little one-inch X-wing in it and used that <laughs> <laughs> for that shot. It's crazy, isn't it? It's yeah. like art eating itself. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. The the whole speeder bike sequence is amazing from a technical level on, on two points it, i think it was one of the first times that that steady cam was used for a big effect shot like that um because they were they were trying to figure out how do we how are we going to get these shots through the forest and uh if we're dry if we're doing a shot sideways we can kind of like drive right next to the woods and shoot into it and no one would really know um but for the like looking forward and looking back, you know, they were trying to, well, they, they did a temp version with, had Mike McAllister go ride his motorcycle through the woods mm. with, with ca- <laughs> cameras, uh, like pointed at his motorcycle to get a sense of how the lighting changed as he drove through and stuff. Um, and then they're, you know, they thought, okay, how are we going to get these final shots? Uh, they thought about hanging the camera from a cable, which 
kind of would have worked, but they would have it would have basically been a straight shot. They didn't really have a way to um, unless I guess they spent a lot of time and money building a rig. You know, they couldn't really rotate the camera very well and motorcycle. You know, you kind of would have seen the path pretty easily that it was going through, and it wouldn't have looked as woodsy. You know, the same with like they kind of maybe could have done a dolly <laughs> shot, like pushed a dolly through the woods, but I think they would have run into the same problems where it was like very lumpy and and uh, yeah. it would have to be through a path that's clear enough that it would look like an obvious path. Yeah, yeah, you can almost imagine them trying to build the dolly track as they were going along. So you you, you did they didn't put it there until it was out of shot kind of thing. But there are a couple of shots where you can sort of see a rough kind of track. But they got Garrett Brown in, didn't they? The inventor of the Steadicam rig, who's who's still going, still training people now. In fact, a couple of my colleagues I was working with at the weekend uh, were trained uh, by him. They're both cameramen on the Formula One Grand Prix that I work on. And he's still very much the man, you know, to go to. Um, I think at the time, even then, what, 82, it was still relatively in its infancy, um, Steadicam. But uh, I remember watching that sequence the first time and it, it felt like the nearest... It was like a halfway house between a movie and a ride. You know, it genuinely felt like <laughs> I was there. I remember my mum and dad, you know, were telling my grandparents afterwards, oh, there's this bit when this log comes straight out and you have to duck. You, you know, we felt like we had to duck. Cause, <laughs> and the sound was, you know, great shooting by all, the, all the, the snaps of the twigs and the trees rushing by. It's a fantastic sequence when it was all, all put together. Yeah. You know, the use of, use of puppetry, the, the live action stuff, I think... Um, they really pulled it off. I think it still stands out very well today. Yeah, that was something that really impressed me was the the way they did the puppets on this. They, I mean, they had their uh, some of their newer motion control camera systems were uh, using servo drives instead of like stepper motors, so it was much smoother and could go much faster. I think it was like a fifty foot track, and it could get from one end to the other in about two and a half seconds. Yeah, it was those really, really fast pullbacks to make them whiz off into the distance. Right. So they could shoot stuff at like real time or even faster instead of, you know, shooting like a frame a second and slightly moving the camera in another frame. And so that's that's what they did with these uh, the puppets for the uh, speeder bike riders. You know, they had the, you know, little blue sticks and stuff uh, <laughs> getting in there for the head and, and the back of the body, but the the hands were stuck to the handlebars. So they didn't have to worry about that moving too much. And uh, they could shoot at, you know, have like real uh, wind from a fan blowing on the puppets and actually fluttering the fabric in a realistic way and, you know, shoot at 72 frames a second. And you end up with a shot once it's slowed down that actually looks more like a realistic figure with the, you know, the fabric actually moving in the way that it should and, and that you could never get with stop motion or, or even go motion. Absolutely. I, I'm, you know, even when I see the clips of the puppets now, the way they've got their, you know, their behind stuck to the speed of bike, their hands stuck to the speed of bike, it gives everything else that movement. So the shoulders are, the, are moving, the head can move up and down and side to side. It's got, you know, it, you, you know, it's a puppet cause there's a rod right there, but it still looks realistic even when you can see that. And it's interesting you say, you know, 72 frames per second and then they're, matting it over onto footage that was shot maybe four or five frames a second from the, <laughs> from the uh, Steadicam. It's, you know, the masters of amalgamating different technologies to, to, to achieve one aim. 
I, I should mention the speeder bike models were made by Mike Fulmer, and the Luke and Leia and the the uh, biker figures were built by Tom Santamon. Um, yeah, just amazing stuff. Um, why don't Why don't we talk mm-hmm. about uh, Jabba for a moment? You interviewed Toby Philpot, and he was one of the the operators inside of Jabba itself. How did How did that all work? Well. Jabba was, you know, one of the most complex puppets. I think the most complex puppet made for a motion picture at the time in 1982 down there in uh, Elstree Studios made by a group of guys headed by um, Stuart Freeborn. Uh, Another guy called John Coppinger was the animatronics um, engineer and I spoke to him as well as Toby Philpot. And Toby was uh, one of the puppeteers that was inside Jabba. There was Toby... Uh, on the left side, so he was manipulating the left arm, and with his right arm, right arm he was turning the head. Um, and then on the right side, there was Dave Barkley with his right arm in Jabba's right arm, and with his left arm, he was manipulating the mouth. So rather than having a, a kind of traditional thumb at the bottom and four fingers at the top kind of mouth that you'd have maybe with a with a muppet, he was having his whole hand in the lower jaw and moving like a, an armature up and down like that. There's some nice, really nice diagrams that um, my friend and collaborator Pete Starling uh, put together for the, my little mini Jabba documentary because we spoke not only to Toby, but to David Barkley as well, who was on the right-hand side, to John Coppinger, who built it, to Mike Edmonds, who was in the tail, because there was also Mike, who you know had uh, also was an Ewok. He's a little guy, and he fit in there just behind the two full-size guys, and he was manipulating the tail and... He, there's clips in the documentary about how you know if Jabba was a bit irritable, his towel would flap around, or you could make it nice and slow and easy when them, he was having a nice lazy day. And it's this amazing <laughs> sort of armature they built that that stepped down through the tail, all driven by cables, and then that whole thing was raised up off the floor so that they could move Jabba independently from from you know where he's sitting but also to get into the beast they had to climb up through the floor so the whole of that Jabba's throne set was raised six feet off the floor um oh wow uh and apparently it was sweltering in in (laughs) in, in, it was sweltering actually in the studio for a lot of the people because they were in these uh costumes like the Gamorrean guards and the other aliens but Toby and Dave and Mike said it was just quite nice it was quite cozy just their body heat made it nice said a bit of air conditioning and mixed with their body heat it was just quite quite nice and calm <laughs> and they were in their own little world they they barely knew what was going on outside because they had fairly primitive um video monitors there was a kind of a wide shot from a grainy camera that was fed back to a monitor that they they had monitors hanging around their necks so they could look down as they were manipulating uh, Jabba's arms and head and mouth um I think when they worked on Dark Crystal they had a quite sophisticated system where they actually saw the shot that they were in um like a video replay system um but with this it was just like CCTV so they could see you know an arm lift if they lifted their arm but they couldn't see the stage as a whole so there was an instant where he had to kind of lick towards Carrie Fisher and he ended up putting all this slime up the side of her face <laughs> which um one of my friends managed to animate a kind of 
Terry Gilliam style version of for my little documentary. Um, but they said, you know, they were just in another world. Like one time, one of the rural frogs jumped out of the bowl that Jabba puts his hand in and it was jumping around the set and there's people screaming and shouting and they thought, I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? <laughs> Is there a fire? Should we be worried? <laughs> exactly. In fact, well, in fact, when they were doing the scenes in the sail barge, it's also shot at Elstree. The exterior is done in Yuma, Arizona, of course. It was a different set. I don't think they were able to raise it off the floor in quite the same way, so they had to cut a hole in the back of Jabba um, in case they needed to escape quickly. Um, but at this point, Jabba was falling apart because they were thrashing him around. There was Carrie Fisher strangling him with a chain, and mm-hmm. it was a kind of a one-shot deal because, you know, these things weren't built to last. They just built to um, shoot with and chuck in a skip and move on to the next thing. In fact, that's where Jabba was for the rest of his life. He was in a, in a big dumpster outside Elstree Studios and John Coppinger would go and visit him now and again, lift up the tarpaulin and see this you know, amazing puppet in there and he managed to salvage just the tail, unfortunately. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because I've been, I've been reading a little about prop building and stuff lately and uh, it's interesting looking at the difference in uh, viewpoint between the people who do um, prop building for like live theatrical performances where it needs to be used over and over and over again and this repeatability for however long the run of the play is versus the people making it for film is just like it has to look good for like five minutes and then we'll throw it away <laughs> and I, th- I think i think jabba did cost there's no exact amount ever written down we've not we've not found one anyway we researched this quite heavily but the nearest we could find was that Jabba cost close to, I think, half a million dollars. Um, and that was for two and a half, three weeks of shooting. Um, but, yeah, he wasn't built to last. I think, yeah, John's got his tail and Lucasfilm have his eyes. But the rest <laughs> of him is uh, is in a landfill somewhere. Oh, man. It's sad. We'll be back in a moment with more Jedi, but now it's time for the Optical Trivia Contest, brought to you by Cinefix. Cinefix 142 is available for pre-order right now, digging deep into the summer's biggest movies. First up is Jurassic World, which reunites a team including ILM, Phil Tippett, and key Stan Winston studio crew members who were there for the first Jurassic go-round. Next up is Avengers Age of Ultron, for which VFX supervisor Christopher Townsend assembles a team that includes ILM, Double Negative, Animal Logic, Luma Pictures, and Framestore, with special effects supervisor Paul Corbold and the mechanical wizards at Legacy Effects lending practical effects support. For Mad Max Fury Road, Cinefx gathers intel from special effects supervisors, the picture vehicle supervisor, hair and makeup designer, and prosthetic team for the mutant characters, and an array of visual effects artists that brought the incredible post-apocalyptic adventure to life. Finally, there's San Andreas, which sees special effects supervisors Brian Cox and Matt Kutcher creating practical earthquake destruction and flood effects, while visual effects producer Randall Starr oversees digital enhancements at several visual effects studios. All of this in Cinefx 142. Pre-order your copy today at Cinefx.com. That's C-I-N-E-F-E-X.com. And if you get your order in by June 1st, your copy of 142 will go out the first mailing of the issue in the second week of June. Congratulations to our April contest winner, Mike Solomon. I hope you enjoy your new Cinefx subscription, Mike. If you want a chance to win your own one-year print subscription to Cinefx Magazine, 
All you have to do is answer this question. Name the inventor of the Steadicam, who also shot the forest footage for the speeder bike sequence in Return of the Jedi. Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website by midnight Pacific time, May 31st, 2015, and you'll be entered to win. One winner will be chosen from the correct entries. Now back to our chat with Jamie Benning. So there was a lot of uh, like that full size stuff shot on this actual barge set that they they shot in Yuma, um, but then they were actually going to blow it up. Um, they were they were thinking apparently about blowing up the full size one at first, but then they realized it would be cheaper to have someone come and haul away the scrap and then you know make a miniature one to blow up instead <laughs> <laughs> well i was listening to a, a quite an interesting radio show over here in the uk the bbc radio 4 radio show and they're talking about there are now companies that are purely there for like sustainability and the environmental aspects of filmmaking so if you build a huge set can we reclaim some money by scrapping this or selling this or converting that? And there are companies now that specifically do that for a wow. living. But you imagine trying to um, trying to blow up the sail barge. I think it was uh, I was I was looking in in this uh, magazine that I keep referring to earlier on, and uh, on their first shipment of lumber alone, it cost a hundred thousand dollars. They used fourteen pounds of nails. Sorry, fourteen thousand pounds of nails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow! And they and uh, they had thousands and thousands of plywood and ten by thirty beams. I mean, to blow that up probably would have cost them more than it did to to to, uh, yeah. to build it. Because then they uh, still have to clean it up. So <laughs> yeah, well, I know that there were there were guys. There's I got some fantastic footage actually um, given to me when I was making Returning Jedi. This guy had been out there at the time and shot some stuff with his Super Eight camera, and this stuff had never been seen before. It then appeared on the internet several years later, and everyone went, "Wow!" I was like, "Well, didn't you see my documentary?" Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, he's got you know some fantastic um, shots of just how it was you know raised off the floor you know by about 30 40 feet and then they they got real sand up onto onto the, the force ground that they'd made so it would seamlessly blend in when you when you shot um from certain angles but it's a, i mean it's incredible the size of it in in the uh, official documentary um, from star wars to jedi george lucas talks about you know how a lot of people have made mistakes in science fiction films by showing off their wonderful things they've built and of course this scene obviously costs a lot of money to build this this set but this scene lasts i think like six minutes and it's months and months of work i think it was something like five and a half thousand days of of uh of man days wow and that includes putting up that was just the people they put up in hotels there was also local people who were traveling there every day that they didn't pay for accommodation for so, I mean, it's, you can see, uh, you know, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for George and his CGI endeavors, but I can understand his reluctance to repeat this. Um, you know, when they made the sand crawler set for the first film, it, they had the worst weather in Tunisia for 50 years and it blew the set away. And I think they warned him about Yuma, Yuma Arizona being similar, that it was going to be sandstorm season, but he went ahead anyway. I think they, they lost two days of production on Return of the Jedi or. Blue Harvest, as they were calling it. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a thing. Thank goodness they they chose to build a model to blow the thing up. <laughs> it would, have, would have been in, heavy injuries otherwise. I think. Yeah, it sounds like they ended up doing that on the roof of the, of ILM's stage. Um, yeah, and, and putting so they could shoot in the bright sunlight. And uh, there was a, a painting that was it Mike Pangrazio or um, yeah, it may well have been yeah. There was, so there's a big painting of kind of like the dunes and and a bit of sky behind that, and uh, then they actually like trucked up some of the sand from Yuma to uh, put around <laughs> it so that it would match. Wow. But it had to be a certain time of day for the lighting to look right so that this, the actual sand would match the painting. <laughs> and uh, it probably was trucked up, but just in everyone's shoes and <laughs> the turnips <laughs> on their trousers. <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen a photo actually of them on the roof of ILM and blowing this thing up. Um, it's kind of a wide angle shot from behind the sail barge, looking back at the crowd of people watching it. And there's, there's at least one guy, maybe two with TV cameras there. So I'd love to know where that footage is. That would be great to see hmm. because um, I'm sure, you know, when it's uh, not shot at uh, the correct frame rate, it must look, you know, <laughs> it must look like a miniature. It must look quite different. I'd like to see that stuff. And if there were any reactions to it, because I think it was a bit of a of a moment. I think whenever you blow something up that's been that beautifully crafted, <laughs> people want to come and see it. Don't know, there's something, some allure for it uh, for people to come and see. And uh, that, there was another interesting thing about that, particularly that, um, like Thane Morris, uh, who we talked to on our Raiders podcast, did the the pyro effects for for this, and he like had worked out new formulas and like was trying to refine the way he did things. Um, but one of the, one of the things he pointed out was that even with a miniature, the real trick is trying to slow down the explosion <laughs> because otherwise it's just you know boom one frame and your model is smithereens, right? <laughs> so instead of one big explosion, it's like chaining together a bunch of smaller explosions to kind of like build the effect over time was the only way to make it look you know more realistic and kind of give you that sense of. You know, it's, it's something that is happening <laughs> over over a period of time instead of just yeah. boom, it's done. Because uh, it is in just that one shot, isn't it? Because, you know, any explosion in a film in the mid-80s onwards, you'd, you'd see it from multiple angles like, several times. Like You look at the Terminator movies, they blow up one building in Terminator 2. I think you see it go off like six times <laughs> from multiple <laughs> angles. Uh, but that was a one one shot thing and one yeah. camera by the look of it. Yeah, and it was the same thing that they did for the 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 tunnel, the Death Star tunnel, as they're escaping and it's exploding. That kind of uh, chain of explosions that follow the camera out as it you know as it goes out. So it's not just one big thing. It's um, but it, and it was also on that they said it was kind of hard to hide where the explosions were coming from. Um, so they had to you know hide it around bends and behind you know, pieces of, of the, the prop detail, um, so that it looked like it was this one thing that was kind of expanding out from the center of the death star and not lots of little tiny explosions, which is what it really was. Yeah. It's interesting that scene because it was, um, it was originally where they were going to kill off Lando Calrissian, uh, with the explosion. They were going to have the Falcon consumed by, by the explosion but oh, George really? decided that uh, he didn't want to go down that route and didn't want to kill off any of the heroes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder yeah. if they ever shot shot a version or, you know, whether they shot it with that in mind and then 
course, optically added the, the Falcon later. I, re- I remember hearing that in your your documentary, like mm. the Lawrence Kasdan even was, you know, the scriptwriter was talking about, well, we should, we should kill off like one of the major characters and it's, you know, it's a big sacrifice that, and they save the day for everybody else. And there's like, nope, everybody has to survive. <laughs> well, he's back of course in the force awakens, um, Han Solo, uh, cause they were talking about killing off Han Solo for return of the Jedi as well. So I'm, I'm almost convinced that Han Solo will be, will be killed off in this new movie because, um, Harrison Ford has never really liked the character and I think for him to come back it's probably so that he can kill off this damn <laughs> character <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, you know I'll be feeling it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've definitely heard him say that over the years it's like okay I'm glad I'm done with this I don't want to talk about it anymore or do anything to do with it so, yeah. so something must have changed his mind maybe that's it they finally agreed to kill him off <laughs> yeah well Kasdan's back Solo's back, yeah. Simple mathematics as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Speaking of explosions, we should talk about one of the explosions that includes the matte painting, the big dish on Endor exploding, which it looks like it was shot on, I've lost the name of it, the the new multi-plane matte camera that they built, which has, uh, it had movement for the camera itself and two other planes of motion and there there was a, a third plane in the back that was steady but you could like you know move the camera across and since you have multiple planes of of depth to it you know you get that parallax that makes it look more like a real shot than um you know just a flat painting for the entire thing um but it, apparently they shot it with that but <laughs> having the uh they they pulled it outside and shot it with that and had the explosion happening on the dish and then had uh, some trees in the foreground painted on glass in front of it so they could put it all together. But they used it in a bunch of other shots like the mostly matte painting of Vader's shuttle approaching the Death Star at the beginning of the film. So you get the layers of like, you know, kind of background detail on the Death Star, where the landing bay is going to be. Um, some more foreground uh, elements to shift, and then a model in the very foreground so that you, you actually had some three-dimensional stuff so that you can get you know some parallax angle on it as it moved past the camera, and it felt more like there was depth to it. And then, of course, Vader's shuttle matted into that shot as well. So like, multiple planes of uh, motion going on there that kind of add together and make it feel more like a real thing. Yeah, and you can see that they, you know, were trying to attempt, in a way, I guess, to replicate that shot when the Star Destroyer first goes over in the first movie. They want to create that scale with that shot, don't they, as the as the tiny shuttle, which we've just seen almost full frame, is now completely consumed by this enormous, um, enormous new battle station they're building. I think, again, you know, it's one of those shots that, it still tr- it still fools me, even though I've looked at it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. It's probably because I've looked at it a thousand times. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's again another great feat. Just using, just knowing where to apply those technologies once they've once they've achieved them. Along with kind of that motion, go going back to uh, talking about motion tracking a little bit. They did some of that in the Rancor Pet sequence as well. Um, some of the same sort of puppeteering that they had done for the speeder bike sequence, you know, they tried to make the camera move on the model 
have the same sort of bumps in it that the background plate they shot in the actual forest might have. So now they're trying to do that as well with moving the camera around in a more expressive way um, as if it's a real place and you're not, you know, trying to be not locked down and feel like that, you know, lock, that lockdown effect shot <laughs> feel that you get yeah, yeah. in some older effects movies. And, um, you know, they did some tests with a gorilla suit, apparently. Yeah, and, well, they did. Yeah, Phil then, Tippett was... Um, he quite enjoyed his role, apparently. Um, but yeah, there's some shots of him kind of bare-chested, stood in this, uh, you know, uh, half half dressed as the Rancor, and uh, kind of an, uh, an unfinished suit. And there's some, there are some test shots of the the set built with the gate lifting and him sort of smashing rocks on the side of the gate. And yeah, it just it just didn't work. I think I think deep down they kind of knew that it wasn't going to work. But I think maybe they were more worried about what they'd have to do as an alternative, which was, of course, this, you know, this kind of 15-inch puppet with four guys, a raised miniature set, shooting at a high frame rate in a very intricately designed set. And uh, as you say, trying to do this motion tracking as well. I think mm. it would have been a lot easier probably for them just to have Phil smash the set up and, <laughs> <laughs> and whack that in the movie. I think I think it turned out really great though. It was like oh, yeah. the, even the first time, well, maybe not the first first time I saw the Ranker when I was eight or whatever. But the, you know, just after having kind of like seen a bunch of other you know like Ray Harryhausen movies and stuff, and and thinking of things in terms of stop motion, and you know, or even after uh, Dragon Slayer, the go motion, um, it's like. I'm kind of looking at it. I was like, wait, that doesn't even look like go motion. It looks much smoother. And then I, what are they doing? I don't understand. And it's, <laughs> it's just, it's a puppet that they're puppeteering yeah. and shooting at a high frame rate. But it's, it like really screwed with my brain for a minute. Cause I'm like, wait, this isn't the technique that I'm used to seeing on screen. Yeah. And it, you've got some of those sort of extra elements that make it look convincing as well, where you can, you know, there's Mark in the foreground or there's that kind of big piece of drool hanging from his chin and right. kind of the glistening in the mouth, you know, so he looks and the, and the eyes as well. They really kind of, uh, there's a really sort of, they're just little pinpricks of light, but you can, you can see life there, which I think really, really sells the shot. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was interesting too. the, um, uh, like you know uh, going on that that Dennis Murin uh, said at the time this was like mid-December this like journal entry he's he kind of said he felt they could deal with pretty much anything it was like well not anything anything but just you know like the tracking shots they did with the Tauntaun and Empire doing more of that now in the in the forest battle sequence and just kind of winging it even though they had this um, they had this field encoder system that they had built where it's you know it's on a tripod but it, the encoder tracks where the camera is pointing and what angle and everything so they can kind of feed that back into the motion control system later and but they were like they felt i guess that that it was easy enough just to have the animation department animate stuff and uh, do motion tracking on it after the fact and you know just figure out how to deal with it later but and then building on that I thought it was interesting that, you know, the, the sort of, um, you know, splicing up takes and, and putting things together in different ways that uh, George Lucas kind of became famous for when the uh, the CGI, <laughs> uh, you know, 
for the uh, episodes one through three came out, um, there's a paragraph in in here that kind of shows that happening earlier on. I, I want to quote from this for a second here. It's, so Richard Edlund has written this um, uh, saying, George is asking for some incredible stuff, a lot of which involves adding things to scenes that from an effects standpoint weren't shot right in the first place. Dennis seems to be getting the bulk of that since he's the one who's working most closely, closely with live action plates. George wanted to put a chicken walker into this one handheld shot that was moving all around, which meant hand-drawn rotomats and plotting the camera moves so that the background elements and foreground elements would all lock into that plate. Horrendous stuff. There'll be a bunch of stormtroopers lying dead on the ground, and he'll want all but two of them painted out. Then over on the side, we'll put in some trees to hide this prop that doesn't make sense anymore. Some bikers are sitting in the scene, but you can see the supports on their bikes, so you have to paint the supports out and maybe add some other bikers flying around. It's just unbelievable some of the things George is asking for. (laughs) What's even more unbelievable is that we're doing it, at least in a lot of cases. We're trying anyway, but even George Lucas can't always have everything. (laughs) There uh, there is a particular shot that I, when I was making Returning to Jedi, that Mm -hmm. I was surprised was... Uh, partly a map painting. I think it's like this wide, there's kind of a wide shot. There's a couple of dead stormtroopers and there's a, a, a chicken walker, as they call them. And Mark mm-hmm. Hamill still calls them, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, in the background, there's a speeder bike sat there. And I was really surprised at how much of that frame was was a map painting and uh, you know how much covering up of whatever it was that needed to be covered up was going on. I wonder what these, thing, these props that... Uh, but no longer, no longer fitted in. Well, yeah, I don't know. There wasn't any more detail about that. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> you can see George really pushing them. There's some, there's some stuff from the creature shop early on um, in Elstree where they were drawing cartoons. You know of what it was like working in the creature shop. Basically, everyone pulling their hair out and going a little bit crazy because George was forever pushing and pushing and pushing, um, and almost without any you know, light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And and near the end, uh, Ken Ralston said that, that uh, they, you know, on most of the shows they had, he had worked on at ILM, they tried to like sneak in little things like the, you know, potatoes in the asteroid field and yes. in Empire. Oh, is um, this the, uh, the running shoe in the space? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he said that like up until, I mean, this was like February, and they're supposed to deliver everything in mid-April. It was like up until this point, it was they were just so slammed with everything that he hadn't taken time to try and do something silly. But then <laughs> it was like, no, finally, we we're getting close enough that like I have to do something. So that was, yeah. He said putting in the pictures of his tennis shoes, wads of gum, things like that. Oh, <laughs> you know, I've looked out for them. But I've never seen them. I still, I don't think I've ever seen the potato in the asteroid field either. Yeah. I don't think you'd know. Um, he he said they were like the really tiny, uh, like far off distance ones. So I like uh-huh. maybe you can only see it in a 4K print of the <laughs> film yeah, or yeah. something. But get the IMAX frame out and uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Although he did he did mention that uh, there was there was a sequence of shots um, the the of uh, where you know they've hijacked the shuttle and they're kind of sneaking past Darth Vader's star destroyer. Um, and for whatever reason, there were like a whole bunch of little things that kept going wrong with these shots. You know, they would it would come back screwed up by the lab developing the film, or just it, 
something would get overexposed or something little tiny annoyances <laughs> kept cropping up it was like this particular sequence of shots was haunted or something <laughs> and so uh I think in the final versions, he said somewhere in each of those, there is a, a little human skull in each of those seven shots. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I've never read that before. Tr trying to ward off bad spirits or something, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, God, I, 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 would, I would turn to anything, you know, when I, um, that far down the line. <laughs> um, and, he, and he said also at that point, they hadn't even... Uh, started shooting the opening crawl wow. um, because uh, George still hadn't written it. Well, yeah, I guess up until very tight to the to the release of the movie, it was Revenge of the Jedi, um, right? And then a Jedi doesn't take revenge and all that kind of stuff. I think right. it was uh, the producer Howard Kazanjian that was the guy that said, "Look, you know, Return is a weak title. I think it should be called Revenge." And then George coming back a short while after saying, no, we're going back to return. It's more, more Jedi-like. Right. Maybe, that, maybe that's when he decided that Jedis couldn't love or have a girlfriend or boyfriend or, <laughs> or enjoy food or <laughs> all of that stuff. They don't enjoy food? That's no, I'm, I just added that one in. <laughs> they just, they're like the, whatever, swamis in India, they just like subsist on air for months at a time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if, if Natalie Portman's in front of you with a few cl <laughs> very few clothes on, then you know I'm sure maybe you'd turn down the Jedi Order. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Gosh, I think that's everything I wanted to cover. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, the only thing I was going to mention that I've written down here is I did another little short thing with Kevin Pike, who worked on the um, the physical uh, effects in both Yuma and in Crescent City where the forest stuff was shot. There's um, some quite some quite little interesting tidbits from him. He was brought on by Roy Arbogast, I think, and uh, he worked closely with Kit West, obviously, because a lot of those scenes <clears throat> involve, involve pyrotechnics. And, and I seem to remember reading as well that they were struggling to find a location for the forest battle scenes because there wasn't a landowner that would allow them to do what they wanted to do, which was, of course, go in there and just start blowing stuff up. <laughs> um, but Kevin worked closely um, on the the full-size uh, chicken walkers, which were sat there stationary for the most part um, when the rebels had been captured by the bunker there. But he also mounted it on a JCB or a Caterpillar or something for those scenes where we see Chewbacca trying to get into the, to the cabin to, to rip the Imperials out. Um, and that's one of the things I hadn't sort of really thought about until till I started to look in. Uh, I found some photos of it actually of um, of the the yellow digger or whatever it was, you know, holding up this this head mount, um, which of course doesn't match the way the ATST or the chicken walker actually walks in the animated sections because the head moves quite heavily up and down, bobs up and down. Whereas in whereas on the digger it's kind of moving forward and stopping and forward and stopping forward and stopping. Um, I wonder if uh, if George is fully satisfied with that. Well, he must be because it's not been updated. It's not been changed over the years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the the one other thing I thought was interesting when they were um, doing some of the the model photography with the motion control cameras. Um, 
it seemed that they were like pretty excited, like this was a new thing at the time that they were um they would do a separate pass uh with explosion uh elements projected onto like a white card um so that it was right in line with the rest of the model and and uh they could do the same motion control move on it so that kind of cards in space thing that's uh you know just a staple of the way cg effects are done now is seemed like this might have been the beginning of it or or at least very close to it since they were still excited about (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty cool i was just reading an article actually um online somewhere uh about why 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 it's easy for us to see if something's cgi um it's interesting some quite um quite damning reports on some of the movies oh um like uh well even a trait a movie that hasn't been released yet they're kind of slagging off uh, jurassic world but they're just talking about the the lack of visual restraint um which i think in those star wars um original movies there was always that visual restraint they were always pushing and pushing and pushing the technologies but there was also they were trying to make it look like a shot that was shot by a camera and you know it wasn't meant to uh, take you totally out because in this article they're talking about you know how every effects movie now has one of these impossible shots that flies through a vehicle and out the other side and then twists around and falls a thousand feet and all this kind of stuff and I think I think the guys at ILM back then back in you know the 70s and 80s they obviously they were up against it technologically but I always think I always get the feeling that they had this sense that it was to fit into the movie it wasn't to stand out you know it was it was to look amazing, but that it didn't lose you. You didn't go, you know, real shot, effect shot, real shot, effect shot. Yeah, that was um, that was one of the things Dennis Barron was saying, actually, that they didn't, um, like one of the reasons they did with a, a bunch of the chicken walkers, tried to do more of them as blue screen and then matted them in, you know, did a little bit of motion tracking and matted them into a real forest shot because it, he felt that, match the rest of the movie better because if you you know kind of build uh, a complete set around the miniature kind of like they did with the the big walkers and on hoth and in empire you can take more time and get all the lighting exactly right and it almost looks over designed compared to the shots that you'd actually get on a live set where you don't really have that time and you maybe get half of what you want as far as the lighting and and that kind of thing so that was, yeah, part of their striving to make it mesh with the rest of the film and feel more like a shot that would actually be shot by a cameraman on set versus something that was designed as an effect shot. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, that seems to have, there seems to be the odd movie out there that still follows that idea. You know, they were talking in this article about in the scene in Jurassic Park where the, the two uh, velociraptors surround uh, one of the characters and I think he says clever girl. Um, and, and then they just had Stan Winston throw the animatronic at the actor. You know, there, was no, there, was, there was no CGI involved because they knew they needed this, you know, this tangible, visceral, physical reaction from the actor. Right. Um, yeah. Although there's not many shots that really in the Star Wars trilogy, I can think of where a, where an actor is genuinely, interact you know there's a there's a genuine reaction needed you know of shock like that um 
I think I think quite often, you know, Mark Hamill isn't given his credit for acting with um, a barely audible puppet in in those movies. You know, <laughs> I think there's a real skill there as an actor. But I think, um, you know, just having those things physically in place, I think it can it can make uh, all the difference. Yeah, I mean, I'm I I'm kind of on the fence. I'm not like. Uh, against she CGI just because it's CGI. Oh, absolutely um, not. I mean, and I'm certainly for spectacle at at times. I mean, like even um, you know, like especially in David Fincher's films, like in in Fight Club or Panic Room, when there's like this impossible shot that goes through you know six floors of the building before getting to wherever. But it's it still serves a purpose where you know you're really trying to orient yourself in the space, even though the shot is impossible. It gives you a better sense of what's going on in the scene. Yeah, I think, you know, like you say, it has its place. I think it's when people just throw it in there because they want to outdo the previous film, you know, the previous effects shot. I mean, obviously, you know, effects artists do want to outdo their colleagues and there is a certain <laughs> level of competition there. But I think, as you say, unless it serves the story or serves the, the geography of the scene, it just feels a little bit pointless. I'm all for CGI, listen. I think that someone like Duncan Jones did a great job. You know, they did a great job on Moon where they had physical models and they were augmented with with um, CGI so you could get the lighting in the way that you wanted it in fact there were a lot of practical effects on the on the prequels I think uh, the Star Wars prequels I think a lot of people think that everything was CGI I think the problem with that film in terms of its CGI was that we were so used to these physical locations like Fintz in Norway for Empire Strikes Back and you know Crescent City for the the Ewok battle and stuff that we were taken away from all of that we didn't have people treading in real environments. I think CGI augmentation is fine. Um, it's just when a, when a shot is completely constructed from CGI that I think it, it still isn't quite there yet. But having said that, you know, having watched Zodiac and not realised that half of that movie is, you know, is CGI, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, some of the sets that they built there, and I, you know, they just went right by me. But that probably because of the context of the movie, it wasn't a all-out actions, you know, extravaganza. Uh, also, I'm not a, a George Lucas basher necessarily. I think he's a brilliantly creative man, and we all owe him a lot. But at the same time, I'm able to criticise him, you know. And it's the same with the. <laughs> uh, it doesn't make me less of a fan, you know. And it's the same with visual effects. I think. You know, there's, there has to be room for discussion for these things, um, and it isn't it isn't a black or white situation. You know, there's a lot of grey area. Sure. So, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, okay, so uh, if you go to filmumentaries.com, it's a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> um, or you can just find me at Jamie SWB on Twitter, um, and there's all links there to my Patreon page and my official site as it were and there's also a filmumentaries page on facebook i must find a way of updating them all at the same time (laughs) (laughs) i'm going through the same thing now (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah uh definitely do uh, check those out there's uh returning to jedi is the full filmumentary with uh, behind the scenes footage and interviews all edited into the film itself so you can kind of watch everything all together it's a pretty fascinating way to watch the film um, and there's uh, the recent interviews, Slimy Piece of Worm-Ridden Filth, Life Inside Jabba the Hut, and the location special effects interview that you did with Kevin Pike, um, and a lot of other uh, great resources on there. There's the other Star Wars films, and Jaws, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and uh, 
I'm I'm looking forward to uh, what you do next. Yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back on. It's really always nice to chat to you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jamie. Cheers. You can find our website and the show notes for this episode at opticalpodcast.com. We're also available on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud at username Optical Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It's free and easy to do. Just search for Optical Podcast on iTunes or follow the link from our website. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us reach new listeners. Big thanks to Cinefix for helping sponsor us. And remember, you can go to Cinefix.com to pre-order issue 142, covering Jurassic World, Avengers Age of Ultron, Mad Max Fury Road, and San Andreas. You can also get the new issues in the Cinefix iPad app, along with every back issue of the magazine, including issue 13, where you can read even more details about the making of Return of the Jedi. Just follow the link from our website. Thanks again to Jamie Benning for chatting with us, and thanks to our dialogue editor, Joseph Ravenson. Thanks to Digital Drew for all of the music in this episode. And you can find more of his music at digitaldrew.com. That's digital, D-R-O-O dot com. And thanks to Mike Gower for designing our Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time. Continues. The circle closes. The saga lives on. Return of the Jedi begins May 25th at a theater in your galaxy.